0: Speaking on behalf of Ms. Pat and myself, I must say to you that we find the greatest joy and the greatest blessing in driving from Columbia every Sunday afternoon to be here with you at church, um, to see what God is doing here, His blessings, God blessing this church with growth, spiritual growth, numerical growth, and biological birth growth. If my memory serves me correctly, I think that I personally have been assisting your pastor in serving you for a little over a year. And you still like me, okay, I guess. And put up with us. But we are so thrilled. Gosh, I cannot tell you what it means for us, even when we have to take a detour to get here. 77 is infamous with automobile accidents, especially right in that area where it gets pretty congested and uh it was raining pretty hard so i guess maybe that had something to do with it but uh but thank god we got here what a joy what a privilege it is to be here and to share with you and preach the very living word of god open your bibles this afternoon to revelation chapter four revelation chapter four Revelation chapter 4 has 11 verses. And let's read. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf, the third creature like a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures gave gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Our gracious Father in heaven, we worship you, God, in the beauty of your holiness. Thank you, God, for allowing us to come to this meeting house as your church. Your church belongs to you, Christ. You're the head of this church. You promised that you would bless it by growing it and advancing it and empowering it in the world for your glory and for the the honor of your name that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. For that, we're so thankful. God, it's my heartfelt prayer that you would give us eyes to see, ears that would hear, and hearts that are ready and receptive to receive the living Word of God. Thank you, Holy Spirit for leading us and guiding us into all truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I've been so blessed to have been preaching in the first three chapters of Revelation that has taken me, believe it or not, a year and a half to preach. It's just when you're committed to the exposition of Scripture, you're committed to the Word of God, you just... Can't skip over anything. In other words, if the word of God is indeed inerrant, is infallible, it is completely and totally authoritative, and every word is true, that means every word must be preached. Otherwise, if we pick and choose, we're editing God. And that's not a good thing to do. But as I've been preaching through these chapters, I could not wait to get to chapter 4 because what is seen in this chapter in Revelation is a scene in heaven. And also what is seen here in heaven is the throne and the worship of God, our Creator. You know, it's interesting how that people are so quick to buy a book from someone who's been to heaven to find out what heaven's like. And then many times when you read the book and what you hear is nothing that's consistent with the Bible because there's no real reason to go outside of the Bible to find out what heaven's like. If you want to know what heaven is like, just read the Bible. If you want to know who's in heaven, just read the Bible. If you want to know what God is doing in heaven, just read the Bible. If you want to know what angels are doing in heaven, just read the Bible. If you want to know what Christ is doing at the right hand of God in heaven, just read the Bible. It is to say that you don't have to go to heaven to find out what heaven is all about. Just read the Bible. Read the Bible. And you can't read Revelation chapter 4, obviously after we have read this, and especially even chapter 5, you can't read Revelation 4 and not see the glory of God on display. And understanding that his glory is on display, it would would be that the only proper response to his glory that is on display would be worship. Worshiping the majesty and the glory and the honor of God. We title this message, The Prototype of Worship from Heaven for the Church. I'm sure you know what the word prototype means, but just to remind you, it's a word that means An original model. It means a standard on which something is patterned, serves as a basis or a standard. That is to say, there's no need even to go outside of the Bible to learn and understand how to worship God. If you want to know how to worship God, go to the Bible. And this prototype or this standard or this preeminent model of worship that is seen in heaven should be what we do in the church on earth. There's no need to go outside of this truth. There's no need to search out anyone or anybody that seemingly has got a a coin or a twist or a turn on what really is relevant when it comes to worshiping God when it comes to certain instruments or it comes to certain styles or prefaces that you would choose as a church or a place of worship, the Bible makes it clear, very clear, that the only true model and the true standard for true worship is seen in heaven. I'll never forget this as long as I live. I was driving through West Columbia one day. This has been maybe two or three years ago, maybe even longer. And I was riding by this church, and on the marquee of the church said, Choose your style of worship. The first style was traditional, the second style was a blended modern service, and the third style was a contemporary service. And I saw that, I said, Really, that's what we've come to today. In many cases, when it comes to church and worship, it's about your preference. It's about what you want. It's about what your style is. It's about what makes you feel good. It's about what you think worship should be. And in most cases, and what is very, very sad, there is a true absence of true worship from the prototype of worship, which is the only true model and true standard an example, as it were, for us to worship. In fact, it's a serious, serious problem today. And I agree with Phil Johnson quoting him. He says, "...worship today is tailored for the pleasures of the audience." It means, or it is to say, that when you get your cues from the world in regard to how you do worship, you know, good and well, that is a problem, and the church is in a serious dilemma if you're getting your cues from the world. When I read that marquee and that sign of that church, choose your style of worship, traditional, modern, blended, or contemporary I begin to see immediately that the first thing that came to my mind. Well, that church is about what best satisfies or what is man centered when it comes to worship. And not only that. Again, when you talk about your style or your uh, your pleasure or your preference, eliminates truth, biblical truth that is consistent in the Bible when it comes to worship when you replace it with a man-centered worship. That's a problem. And that's sad. Church today, in many ways, has become so pragmatic that there is no real true worship or no room for true worship because it's more about being accommodating. It's more about being, again, about catering to the world's likes or dislikes, it's more about trying to find the felt need of a person, and it's almost like trying to find where their itches and scratch it so you can make them feel better. And the truth is, it's not biblical worship at all. I never forget Another thing that I experienced. This has been probably uh, I think this book came out in 2008. and I was at a Barnes and Nobles and I was in there looking at some books. And the book had just come off the press entitled, You Can Have Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen. And when you were going to the bookstore, there was a huge box filled with his books and had like a life-size poster of him on the back part with his Colgate smile. And there were two ladies there just giggling and having the best time looking at him in this poster, gleaning through his book. And I certainly was not trying to eavesdrop in their conversation, but you couldn't help but hear them just making over Joel Osteen. Well, if any of you know me, I'm the kind of guy, I just can't let that lie. So I walked over to him introduced myself and said, Ladies, I could not help but to hear... About how much you like this book by Joel Osteen on You Can Have Your Best Life Now. And I said, What is it that you like about him so? Well, he's just so cute. We think he's cute. I said, Okay. And he makes us feel so good when he talks. And they added a few, mother, few more comments about him. But what really made me so sad at the end of the conversation was they never mentioned one time that they liked him because he preached the Word of God. Not one time. Now you can have your best life now and the seven points he brings out in that book is that number one, if you want your best life now, enlarge your vision. That's the first thing you do. The second thing you do is develop a healthy self-image. And then the third thing you do is discover the power of your thoughts and your words. And then the fourth thing you do is let go of the past. And then the fifth thing you do is find strength through your adversity. And the sixth thing you do is live to give. And the last thing is choose choose to be happy. Now I gleaned through that book. And mind you, there was not one bit of presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My point is, is that what people call church today, and incidentally, Lakewood Church is probably right now in America on any given weekend the largest by by attendance of any other church or gathering in America every weekend. And so when I begin to hear these ladies I begin to realize even back then and this was in 2008 that really what is missing today is the not only the truth concerning the gospel but what comes out of that gospel what comes out of that truth is a true sense of worshiping God. And not one time did these ladies ever mention it. And I did ask him, I said, well, when did you come to Saving Faith in Christ? How long have you been a believer? Neither one of them could give me an answer. Leaving me wondering if even even if they were Christians. But yet there's something about that, that type of ministry that's appealing to the world because it touches something, but yet what it touches is something that makes you feel good about you And what's really void in that and what's really missing in that is a true perspective of the sovereignty and the glory and the honor of the Lord. I never forget in 1982, some of you weren't even born then, but in 1982 a new book came out and it was entitled Self-Esteem, The New Reformation by Dr. Robert Schuller, pastor of the Christal Cathedral in Garden Grove, California. Dr. Shula believed that Martin Luther missed the whole point. He said the first reformation erred from God. It should have been more man-centered than God-centered, he said. And that's what prompted him and motivated him to write that book. In fact both of these books. Can still be purchased. And both of these books. People are still buying. You can have your best life now. And you can if you're lost. In other words if you're lost. You can count on this is your best life now. Because if you go into eternity. Lost without Christ. And separated eternally from Christ. You better know that your best life is right now. So again, enlarge your vision, develop your healthy self image, discover the power of your thoughts and words, let go of your past, find strength in, in adversity, live to give, and choose to be happy because you'll have it right now. If that is indeed what you do, and that happens. Robert Schuller was a man that really believed that if you preached a gospel that dealt with basically the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, you would destroy them. Yes, he believed you needed forgiveness. You needed to trust Christ. But you never preached anything that would put them in a place where they are in need of God because what they really need is a true sense of self-esteem and self-worth and self-confidence and self-love. In fact, Dr. Michael Horton who has a podcast called The, the White Horse Inn he's written several books I highly recommend him he's a great theologian he wrote books such as Putting Amazing Back into Grace, Beyond Cultural Wars, We Believe in the Face of God, a great writer, a great preacher of the truth. And he asked Dr. Schuller in an interview, he says, So, so if so, if I address someone as a sinner and preach the word in such a way that I would expose that about themselves, and he interrupts Dr. Horton and says, Oh, I hope you don't do that to them. He says you will destroy people's lives if you do that. He believed primarily that if you're going to do any good in reaching people, essentially you've got to make them feel good about themselves. And how many of you know that that is not the gospel? The point being is all these things have a profound effect on people when it comes to understanding truly what worship is. Dr. Bill Hybels, also pastor of Willow Creek Church who pretty much was the guru of establishing the seeker sensitive model for church. I can assure you, if you read with me and saw the words here in Revelation chapter 4, there is nothing about this worship in heaven that is seeker sensitive. Nothing. Because there's nothing in that worship in heaven that's about you. Worship is not designed to cater to you. It's not about you. But the understood subject of the worship here in heaven is all about God. So the prototype of worship from heaven is not about worship that attracts the world. True worship is not your preference. It's not your pleasure. It's not not your likes or your dislikes. True worship is exalting the worth and the pleasure of God. That's what it is. That's what it is. The standard that the church conforms to is the worship of heaven seen in Revelation 4. There's the prototype. There's the standard. There's the model. That's what we see. I love what R.C. Sproul said, and I quote him, If God Himself... Were to design worship. What would it look like? If God himself was to design worship. What would it look like? It's right here in chapter 4. It's right here in chapter 4. And then when you look at that last verse of chapter 4. Worthy are you. Our Lord. And our God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of Of your will they existed and were created. Or for your pleasure they were created. They were created. Now when you go back to chapter 4 again beginning in verse 1. John says after these things. What things? Well what just preceded in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2 and 3. John's on the Isle of Patmos. We know this very well. He's the oldest of all the apostles. He outlived all the rest of them. He finds himself on an island called Patmos. He's treated as a common criminal for only two reasons. Because of the Word of God and the testimony of Christ. How many know today in our culture to maintain the testimony of Christ and to maintain integrity and truth in the, in the veracity and the authority of truth? How many know that's not a popular thing these days? It got John thrown in a place of, of a prison, as it were, in, car, in incarceration there in, in um, the Isle of Patmos. And then we see that he receives that unique vision that is very graphic. The imagery is powerful. And he saw those seven things that Jesus revealed to him that he was doing in the church, and he continues to do in the church to this day, and then all were the messages that he had given to the seven churches in Asia Minor. So after these things, a transition takes place. And it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. After these things he looked, behold. It's a word that means that what he saw and what he was beholding is something that caused him to be amazed. Now think about it. He's in the spirit again. He is experiencing something that transcends anything that's on a natural level or a human perspective. He's outside of himself as he were on the day of the Lord in chapter 1 of Revelation. He finds himself in that same way here in chapter 4. But where he finds himself, and the reason why he's looking at this with such an amazement, there's an open door, but the open door isn't to heaven. John actually goes to heaven. Now folks, think about it. If God was to grace you and God was to grace me with an opportunity to actually see or go into heaven, do you think you might be amazed about that? Do you think there might be a, a, a sense of amazement in what God would allow you to see? I think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7. We know he preached the gospel in such a way. He was one of the very first leaders. One of the very first ones that served the church in the first century. He preached the gospel in such a way that he got killed for it. Stephen was the very first martyr in the first century church. In the history of the church as we know it. But as they took up stones and Saul, who later would be Paul, Saul of Tarsus, giving them the order to take his life... Saul at the time, thinking he was doing God a favor and doing what honored God, took up stones and literally began to stone Stephen to death. But what is unique, it says that before he died or gave up his spirit, God graced him with a vision of the open heaven. And it says, and Stephen looked, and when they looked at him, there must have been something about his countenance that made them think it was like, again, they compared it to the face of an angel. But he saw heaven open. And it says, and he saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now he's about to die. They say one of the most horrible ways to die is to be stoned to death. Very painful. And it's a terrible way to have to die. But to know that what he saw probably caused such an amazement for him, even before he gave up his spirit, saying, God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And the moment he took his last breath, in his heart beat its last beat, he's in the presence of the King of Glory, Jesus Christ. John here is in heaven. A door standing open. The door opened, and it gave John access into heaven. 256 times in the new testament you find the word heaven heaven here is described or it means the abode of god in acts 111 when jesus finally ascended after resurrection he spent 40 days on the earth and then 10 days prior to pentecost he was taken up he ascended to where he was before he came In heaven, co-equal in terms of eternity and deity in heaven with God at His right hand on that throne with God. But they saw Him ascend back to heaven, the abode of God. Even the Lord teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And there are many other verses that confirm that heaven is very much a real place. It is the abode of God And Christ ascended there. It is to say that John here in Revelation 4 is actually in heaven. Seeing the open door. And then verse 1 says, The first voice John heard was familiar, but the voice he heard was compared to the sound of a trumpet. That same sound of a trumpet was seen in chapter 1 verse 10 that he heard. That voice that sounded like a trumpet was none other than Jesus' voice himself. And he's hearing that voice that is like the sound of a trumpet. For me personally, I'm an early riser. I'm generally up between 4 and 4.30 every morning. I grab my cup of coffee. I'm headed off to my study, trying to catch up on reading, studying, praying. But where I live... In Columbia, um, I'm not far from Fort Jackson, a basic training place for recruits in the Army. And at 5.55 a.m., in the quietness of my study, this is what I hear. Then at 6 o'clock, I hear this. Every morning, except Sunday morning, without hesitation, five 55, fifty-five a.m. the call, and at six o'clock or oh six hundred hours, reveille. And those soldiers know what that means. There is something about the sound of a trumpet that, to me is better than any other type brass instrument and i love instruments i love the brass i love that but if you have anyone that can play the trumpet like this individual was playing it hitting every note with precision hitting every note on pitch hitting every note with clarity makes me realize that the the metaphor that is used here that's compared to the voice of the Lord is the sound of a trumpet. But that speaks of a, a sound or a voice that comes across with commanding authority. And so when John said that voice sounded like a trumpet, in essence what he was saying, it's very clear, it's very precise, there's no hesitation in it, it's completely, in, it's completely authoritative and I hear every word and it had his undivided attention. Undivided attention. When you see that and you hear that sound of the trumpet, again, it speaks of the commanding authority of the word of the Lord in regards to His voice sounding like a trumpet. And this is what He said To John, come up here. Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things. Question What truly identifies true worship? What is distinctive about worship? Well, here in verse 2, It says, John says, immediately I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. The first obvious distinction about true worship is that you have a perspective of God's sovereignty which in turn gives you a high and right view of God, a high view of God, the model, the prototype for worship for the church in this worship that we see in heaven is the worship that we need in the church. It begins with having a high view of God in all of his sovereignty. It is to say that when you have this this view of God that identifies what true worship is that's seen in heaven. Is to realize that John sees a throne, is standing in heaven, and what this represents is God's sovereign rule and authority over all the world, over all His creation, over all, period. That's where it begins. We should be, every day of our life, consumed by this. This should be the very thing that motivates our heart and causes such a godly enthusiasm to arise in our souls and in our hearts when it comes to understanding what it is to have a high view of God and to worship God in the beauty of His holiness. That's what we see here. We don't see your preference. We we don't see your style. We don't see your likes, your dislikes. We see God on display and He gets all the glory in this, in heaven. That should be what we do here in church. It's not so much a horizontal type of worship where we're checking each other out to make sure you're singing right or you're doing the right thing. Is it moving you? Is it, is it doing something you emotionally? No, it's vertical. We have our eyes on God. We understand that worship begins with having a high view of God. And we worship Him in the beauty of His holiness. Sovereign rule and authority. This is the proper view of God. And it says that on this throne that was standing. He saw a throne that was standing. That means that the one who sits on this throne, the Lord Himself, and that throne is standing, it means that This is in a fixed, permanent position that is unshakable. And I want you to notice something. In this place in heaven, where there's the scene in heaven, and there's the worship in heaven, and there's the throne, and it's standing, and this one's sitting on the throne, this is not taken casually in heaven. This is not taken flippantly in heaven. Folks, listen. We come and we gather to worship. We come together to hear the truth. We come together to exalt God and magnify Him in spirit and in truth. Now if you're Jesse Duplantis, he's got a different view of this. He says he's been to heaven and he's high fied Jesus and They bump knuckles and Jesus at one time when they were walking together side by side like good old buddies in heaven he noticed Jesus crying and Jesus begins to say that you know the rest of the story and the rest of things that are yet to come is probably the one thing I regret and don't look forward to at all. And Jesse Duplantis goes into this this thing about where he's actually ministering to Jesus. Now, come on, folks. Jesus needs your counsel. <laughs> Jesus needs your ministry. Jesus needs your input to somehow bring him comfort and strength. And no, no, no. Anything I see in the Bible, whether it's John, When he saw this vision, chapter one, when it got through, he says he felt like a dead man. He said, he felt like a dead man. Jesus is when Jesus confirmed and placed that right hand on him and said, Listen, don't be afraid. I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. This is what I'm doing in the church. This is what I will continue to do. I'm growing my church, I'm empowering my church, I'm advancing my church. And all these things you're seeing, I'm doing now, John. You'd be encouraged. But everything I see in the Bible with is Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, he said, I'm damned. I'm undone. I'm unclean. Have seen the Lord of glory. Anybody else, whether it's Daniel, whether it's Ezekiel, Even Paul, when he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, he was struck blind. He was struck to the ground. But yet you tell me you're going to encourage Christ? You're going to counsel Christ? You're going to minister to Christ? And you're going to give a high five to Christ? And you're going to give Him a knuckle bump? No! There's nothing casual here about heaven. There's nothing flippant here. This is serious. This is worshiping the King of glory. I know I'm excited, but I'm not going to apologize for it because I believe we need to hear this truth in Revelation 4. And to add, Jesse DePlantis says it's not unusual that in his study Jesus just (claps) poop shows up. Gosh, that must be awesome. To have Jesus show up when you're studying? And on this one occasion, he looked at Jesus. Jesus had these tears coming down his face. and Like Jesus said, what's up, Jesus? Why, why are you crying for? He says, and then he found himself once again encouraging Jesus. Really? No. 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 That's not the way it is. And there's nothing seen here in Scripture that supports any of that. Jesse the needs to repent of that. And make that right with God. The focus here is clear to see. That in this chapter of Romans, or excuse me, Revelation 4, that the most preeminent thought in Revelation 4 is the throne of God. Eleven times the word throne is mentioned. The focus is the throne of God. When you look at chapter chapter four, and you begin looking at verse two, three, five, part of five into verse six, latter part of verse six, and then verses eight through verse eleven, you see that the throne is looked upon and seen from every per- every possible angle in heaven. We see. A perspective of the throne, as it says here, verse two, on the throne; verse three, around the throne; verse five, from the throne; latter part of verse five, going into verse six, before the throne; latter part of verse six, uh, the center or the middle of the throne or around the throne. In the last thing there, toward the throne, toward the throne. That's the focus here. God, His throne, His majesty, His glory. says He's seating, sitting on the throne. This high view continues with a seated position, a seated posture. God the Creator, the Sovereign One, is seated as ruling and reigning. John does not specifically name the one sitting on the throne, but we know who it is. It's obvious. Again Isaiah said in 6.1 I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of His robe filling the temple. Daniel saw a vision of heaven in Daniel through 10 The prophet Micaiah saw the Lord on His throne in 1 Kings 22.19 He says I saw the Lord sitting on His throne and all the host of heaven standing by Him on His right and on His left. The psalmist said in Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. Ezekiel is another great example biblically of the throne of God that has a lot of very similarities spoken of here in Revelation 4, seen in Ezekiel chapter 1. And as I said, there's nothing casual about this. This is no walk in the park. Nothing flippant about this. This is heaven. This is God, this is the lofty one, this is the exalted one that we worship. Isaiah, Daniel, Micaiah, Ezekiel, even John were all struck. There was fear, there was reverence, there was awe. A high view of God, a high view of his sovereignty. The only response to that greatness is worship. So when you say the word worship, what do you mean? What is meant by worship? Worship is a word that means to extol the worth of something. The word extol is a word that means to exalt, to glorify, to laud, to praise lavishly. The word worship is found in the Old Testament 165 times. The Hebrew word there is pronounced Saha, S-A-H-A. And it just means to bow down. It just means to bow down. It's speaking of a posture that the only real response to the holiness and the righteousness and the goodness and the power and the glory and the sovereignty and having that high view of God is, is a posture where we bow before the King of glory. Psalm 96, verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him, all the earth. Psalm 29, 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord glory to his name. Worship the Lord in holy attire, or worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 86, 9 says, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Psalm 95, 6 says, Come, let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Psalm 99, verse 5 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Psalm 99, verse 9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For holy is the Lord our God. So many more scripture about what it is to worship God. Everything indicates and points to a high view of God. But then even in the New Testament, you'll find the word worship there 54 times. In the New Testament, of the 54, 22 of those worships are found in Revelation. 22. The worship there is proskuneo in the Greek. It means to to make obeisance. Obeisance or to reverence. That word obeisance is a word that means a gesture or a movement of body. And we see that example of what obeisance is when it comes to reverence and worship. The Lord in the New Testament, Revelation 5.14 says, And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worship. There's the obeisance. There's the gesture or the movement of worship. They fell down. They worshipped Him. Revelation 7.11 says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures And they fell down. There again is the obeisance. There is the gesture of movement. Body movement. They fell down. They worshipped before the throne. And worshipped God. Revelation 11.16 says. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God. Fell on their faces and worshipped God. Revelation 15.4 says. "Who Who will not fear O Lord. And glorify your name. Fear there is awe and reverence. Who will not have reverence and awe and fear, O oh Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Sola, you alone, you are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And then Jesus said in John 4:24: God is a spirit, and they who worship him. Must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Well, I got through with the introduction. I'm thankful that I'm going to get another opportunity to preach because we're not through. We've got some more to cover here in Revelation 4. I want to encourage you that you would realize that in true worship, It's not you, but it's Him. It's not your likes or your dislikes. It's not your preference. It's not what you necessarily choose. It is simply going to the Word and seeing fully and completely that the prototype of true worship is seen in heaven, and that's the way we are to do it on the earth. a high view of God on the earth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, your truth. God, I believe with all my heart we're living in a day where we should certainly take this very, very seriously and understand that you've created us for your pleasure. Your honor. And the way we see that we do that best in response to who you are is having that proper view and high view of you, God. Anything that would distract that, anything that would come in the way of that, God. If there would be any way, any sin found in our hearts here today, God, that you would take the flint knife of your love and go to the deepest crevices of our heart. Expose that sin that we might repent and love you and worship you in the beauty of your holiness. For that, God, we give